That word above all earthly powers, no thanks to them abideth. The Spirit and the gifts are ours through Him who with us sideth. Let goods and kindred go. This mortal life also. The body they may kill. God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. That's what we see when we read the Scriptures. That's what Nebuchadnezzar came to and when he came to his senses. That's what so many have come to that it is his kingdom, that he is king and his kingdom is forever and that he has accomplished and is applying the redemption purchased by Christ and this world will exist until his plan is completed. Just a review, a quick review before we come. Really a review of the Bible. The Bible is a history of God accomplishing His plan of redemption. But it is also a history of gospel opposition frustrated. From the time of Cain killing Abel, men have resisted God and His truth and sought to put it down and sought to stop it and sought to frustrate it. Think about this. Some of the greatest enemies of the gospel have been the clergy. Think about the Old Testament religious leaders, the false prophets and the false priests. And since Christ lived on the earth, we we continually see it play out. We've seen it in Acts. In Acts 1, we saw Jesus' resurrection and His His promise of power. We saw the in chapter 2, the pouring out of that power. And it was power upon the church for witness, for warfare to witness. Knowing they would be opposed. Christ was honest about that. And in chapter 2, that Spirit is poured out on the church at Pentecost. Power for witness given. And Peter preaches and there's mass conversion. So far, so good. Then in Acts chapter 3, we have the healing of the lame man. And mass conversion. Again. And then in Acts 4, we have the first signs of trouble. They're arrested, they're threatened, but they're released because it's an awesome miracle, the healing of the lame man, and they they cannot deny it. They don't punish them, they threaten them and release them. And then the church gathers in prayer for boldness, boldness is granted, and they continue to preach. We saw another summary in the end of chapter 4 about their generosity with one another. And then we saw Ananias and Sapphira lie to the Holy Spirit and be struck down. In church. And then again, we have the a summary where Mike preached last week of the apostles doing the signs that authenticate their ministry, but the people were being saved through the preaching of the gospel. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. And so that's happening. There been, if you look in verse 14, more than ever, believers were added to the Lord multitudes of both men and women. God is authenticating. God is defending. God is blessing His gospel. God is defeating all opposition. And the very people of God from Israel, the high priest who is supposed to represent God and and, and is opposing Him. Through envy and jealousy, raising up and opposing His gospel. And what we see, we kind of see a snapshot of history in this text. That's why I'm not going any further. But we see God defending His gospel. And seeing Him keep His gospel free to accomplish His purpose. 
Really, the, the main point, the Lord has and will see to it that His gospel is free and His opponents are frustrated until He completes His mission to save all His people. The Lord has and will see to it that His gospel is free and His opponents are frustrated until He completes His mission to save all of His people. Look at, look at verses 17 to 21. The Lord always sets His gospel free. The gospel is never bound. The gospel is never hindered. The gospel is always going forth. Some of its preachers may be arrested and some of its messengers may be arrested and beaten and killed, but it still goes forth. Because God is behind it. And it won't stop. You see the high priest in verse 17 rising up and the party of the Sadducees with him. And the Sadducees were the more liberal wing of the Sanhedrin. And they're, they're especially rising up. Not that the Pharisees weren't. We see them as well. But look what it says about them in verse 17. The reason they're raising, rising up against the apostles, and it's really not these men, it's what they're doing, it's what they're preaching. It's what they're proclaiming. This Jesus that they had killed and stamped out and thought they had, had made an end to His mission. Now His apostles are doing more. And more and more people are coming to the Lord. And it says in verse 17 that they were filled with jealousy. They were filled with jealousy. People in mass are leaving them. No longer thinking highly of them. No longer supporting their ministry. And coming over to what this, this new thing. This, they think it's new anyway. It's not really. But trusting this Jesus who is the Messiah they preach and, and, and gathering and, and being part of the church. And they're filled with jealousy. The word zealous, really. It's a deep concern for and a devotion to. Positively, it speaks of positive zeal. Right? Zeal for truth. Zeal for God. Zeal for good things. Negatively, it's a misdirected zeal. Flowing out of envy and jealousy. Self-focus. It's a misdirected zeal. They are, look at, think about this. Their devotion, their zeal, their passion is to stamp the gospel out. That's really what they're about. Not just to not believe it and not just to say, oh, that's okay for you. But their zeal is to stamp the gospel out. To hear no more about this Jesus. No more about His resurrection. No more about salvation and life. In him, And if the apostles had stopped preaching that, they would have been fine. If they just went around healing people and making life better, no problem. But Jesus is the problem. And they're preaching that. And they're turning, people are turning and they're envious. And they want to stop it. Later, later in chapter 9, we're going to come to Saul of Tarsus, who we see converted. And the apostle Paul, right? From, from a great enemy of the gospel to one of its most 
effective preachers and promoters. But he says this in Philippians 4 about his religious pedigree. And he identifies with these leaders confessing to the same zeal. Watch this, same word in this passage. In Philippians 3, 4-7, If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Look at his pedigree. Circumcised on the eighth day, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, the most devoted, at least in their eyes. Six, as to zeal, there's our word, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted it loss for the sake of Christ. So misdirected in his zeal that he was trying to stamp out the church. To silence, to kill, to remove the church. So he understands that and he diagnoses that problem in his brethren. If you read Romans, and please spend time in Romans. If you, if you understand Romans, you'll understand the whole Bible, okay? But in Romans chapter 10, Paul confesses a passion for his, his Jewish brothers. And he says in this, in, in verse 1, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, his Jewish brethren, is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness. Now watch this, same word. They have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. They have a zeal, but it's misdirected. They have a zeal, but their zeal is being fueling opposition to the gospel instead of acceptance of it. In verse 3 he says, this is what's wrong. It's deep in their heart. It's flowing out of their heart. Being ignorant of the righteousness of God or the righteousness from God through faith in Jesus Christ. And seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. See, the problem is a heart problem always. And they're rejecting the free gift of righteousness that is found in Jesus Christ only. And they, through their own good works, are seeking to establish their own righteousness. Proto, I mean, they are, they are preeminent legalists. Yet the religious leaders of Israel, seeking to establish their own righteousness, have their own system set up. And anything that threatens that system must be stamped out. They are the representatives of God. They are the ones that are serving God in their minds. Paul was that way. He diagnoses that problem in Romans 10. And the leaders here are that way. They are, they are supposed to be representing the true and living God on the earth, and yet they are opposing Him. They are fighting against Him and doing it in religious garments. They're doing everything in their power to stop the Gospel from going forth. But it's no use. You can't fight against God and win. Look what they did though. Filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in public prison. But... But, during the night, now we're not told which angel, so I'm not going to speculate, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out. This is a jailbreak of epic proportion. This is God overruling and frustrating their plans to keep His messengers in jail. An angelic jailbreak. And look what they, they not only open the doors and let them out, look what they say. They say, run for the hills. Your life is in danger. 
Sometimes the angels did tell people to flee, right? Lot from Sodom and, and other things. And they'll help people sometimes. But not here. Notice this, the angel is, is giving th- from God and, and through them a gospel command. A great commission command. Go back and keep doing what you were doing. Look at it. Go and stand in the temple. Go and stand in the heart of danger. Go and stand in the heart of opposition. And just stand there. No. Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And look how, you know, they, they didn't wait. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak, the time of the morning sacrifice. They entered the temple at daybreak and began, think about that. Sacrifice is going on and they're preaching the fulfillment in Jesus and preaching the gospel right there in the temple. The authorities think they're in jail. But they are in obedience to God's command through this angel. They're back in business. The gospel is going forth. And he tells them to preach to the people all of the words of this life. It's an interesting way to put preach the gospel, isn't it? But the gospel is words of life. Where to find true life. And that's in Jesus Christ. God's Son, the Messiah, who was born humbly into this world, both God and man, who lived humbly. Then beginning His ministry at His baptism, He took this group of knuckleheads around with Him and trained them for gospel ministry. It wasn't the religious elite He took, right? He took these guys around with Him and trained them and, and showed them and proved who He was. God was proving through Jesus who He was by the things that He said and did. They are convinced finally by His resurrection and now they are out preaching the gospel. But the gospel is Jesus Christ died for our sins. He lived for our righteousness. He died for our sins. And He was raised from the grave the third day. It's a very simple message. And eternal life, this life the angel is talking about, real life, true life, eternal life is found in Him and Him alone. And it's through not working for it, not earning it, not trying to establish it on your own, but receiving it as a free gift. We're told to repent of our sins and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. We are to turn from unbelief to faith and trust and receive Jesus. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. Don't get tired of that verse. That whosoever believes in Him may not perish. See, justice is what we deserve. Condemnation is what we deserve. But those who by God's grace have faith and trust in Jesus, they may not perish, but have everlasting life as a free gift. Go into the temple and preach about Jesus and tell of His death, burial, and resurrection and and make the, the offer to everyone there that if they will turn from their sin and trust in this Messiah, they will have eternal life. 
that's just a simple summary of the words of life that they would have been preaching. And you can read some of the sermons in Acts. And, you know, you read Hebrews. That was a sermon about the superiority of Christ and His covenant and His, his gospel. Read Romans. Know God's Word. Know Jesus. But what about you this morning? Are you trusting and resting in Jesus? What do you think about somebody saying to you, Jesus is the only way? You will not be saved in any other way. Why? All our righteousness is filthy rags. All our attempts to make ourselves right with God fail because we are sinful. Polluted by it. But God in His kindness has sent His Son to fully attain our salvation by His life, providing a righteousness we don't have, glorifying the Father by His death, paying the penalty for our sin, taking that upon Himself as God and man. He can sustain the wrath of God and satisfy it and prove by His resurrection He was raised the third day. Are you trusting in Christ and Christ alone? I mean, it's a very... There, I don't lead you in a sinner's prayer because there's not one. <laughs> you can't find that in the Bible and make them pray this, this, and this. and Because it's salvation through trusting Jesus. It's faith in Jesus and it's expressed in many ways. The thief on the cross said, Jesus, remember me. You come into your kingdom. And he said, I tell you the truth, today you will be in paradise. The publicans said, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus said he went home justified. Push to the wall is your faith in Jesus and in nothing else. Well, that's a simple summary piece of the message. Maybe they were preaching that day, but they're not hiding. They're obeying. They're in the temple courts preaching at daybreak, preaching the true temple, Jesus, the fulfillment of all of that while it's going on. And when you love to be there and hear that. Now, meanwhile, kind of like a story, meanwhile, back at the Sanhedrin, the Lord, point number two, the Lord always frustrates the enemies of His gospel. I warn you, if you're an enemy of the gospel, you will not end up being right. You will be frustrated. Be frustrated in this life and turn to Jesus. Don't wait till after this life. But the Lord always frustrates the enemies and He frustrates these enemies. Now look at it in, in verses 21b to 26. Now when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council, all of the synod of the people of Israel. And I'm going to pause for a minute. Think about it. These guys get up early. They have their morning coffee. They're thinking about what they're going to do in the trial. They're gathering together to, to put these guys on trial. They probably have a plan there, an agenda, a docket for what, how it's going to work. And it says they sent to the prison to have them brought. So the court convenes. The leadership is together. The ruling class are together. And they say, bring the prisoners. Nope. There are no prisoners. There are no prisoners. And nobody seems to know this. The doors are locked. The guards are still there. The prison is securely. I mean, it is locked down. And you know, you can see them sitting there. Okay, bring in the prisoners. Verse 22. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison. So they returned and reported. Look what they reported. And we're going to see this with Peter in chapter 12. We'll talk a little more, but this happens again with Peter. But look what they see this time. We found the prison securely locked 
and the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found nobody inside. They took these guys into the prison, locked, put guards at the doors, locked the doors. They are in prison behind these guards. And I don't know what the angel did to these guards, but it clearly says he didn't, you know, just Star Trek fans, he didn't beam them out of the prison. He didn't just, you know. He opened the door and took them out. But these guards didn't see a thing. They were there on duty, fully, fully knowing that their prisoners are safe and under guard and under lock and key. But when they opened the doors, it's like a magic trick. The rabbit's not in the hat anymore. Only this is real. The rabbit's not hiding in some compartment. He's out. We found the prison security lock and the guards standing at the doors. When we opened the doors, we found no one inside. Now when the captain... Now watch this. They're coming back and reporting this. When the captain of the temple and the chief priest heard these words, they were, they were greatly perplexed. They were greatly confused. They didn't understand. See, and these guys, listen, especially the Sadducee side, they don't believe in miracles. They don't believe in resurrection. I mean, after all, science proves there's no, no miracle. Science can't prove that. Another, another sermon. They're perplexed. Where'd these... What? What are you saying? They're not there. The prison was locked. The guards are there. The door was locked. But they're not there. Maybe some of them are remembering Christ and all they went... Oh no, here we go again. They were greatly perplexed, wondering what this would come to. And as they're sitting there, scratching their head with these big question marks over their head, someone, we're not told who, comes in and says, you know the guys you're looking for? They're in the temple, teaching. And the leadership probably said, well, go get them! They don't know what this means. They don't know how they escaped, but they now know where they are. They're in the temple. And so the captain with the officers went and brought them, but look at this, not by force. Fear of man, afraid of the people, afraid of being stoned. So they, they invite them to come to court gently and lead them back. And we're going we're gonna to look at the trial next week. But they are, the leadership is impotent to stop the spread of the gospel and they don't see it. Trial number two next week, which will result in a beating and rejoicing. We'll, we'll look at that next week. But I just wanted to pause and think about this. Angels are here. Angels are all throughout the Bible. The first thing I wanted to talk to you about is what about the angels? If you read the Bible, you know they are holy angels and fallen angels. These are holy. This is an holy angel. An angel. Not the angel of the Lord, but an angel of the Lord. And listen, this is not a little fat flying baby. That's not what they look like. People who see angels in their glory fall on their face in fear. But sometimes we entertain them unaware, it says in Hebrews. You may have thought you had dinner with a person and it was an angel. Something to think about. But this was a holy angel. This was not a flying cherub, baby-looking thing. 
And he's awesome when seen. And listen, angels are real. We lose sight of a lot of things in Scripture, don't we? How many times this week did you think about, believer, your guardian angel that was probably with you? Or angels, or the horse, the horde of them that may be around you. What are angels and what are they doing? Well, they're real and they're sent to serve God's people. Look at Hebrews 1.14 says this. Speaking of angels, and it's the first sort of step in Hebrews and the, the author is showing the superiority of Jesus over the angels. But he tells us something about angels in verse 14. He says, are they the angels? Now look at this. Not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who will inherit salvation. Notice it didn't say for the sake of everyone. They're sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. A people given to Jesus before the foundation of the world. Again, another sermon. But angels are ministering spirits who are sent to serve God's people. Both before and after they come to faith. I mean, I, can tell, I, can, I remember stories in my own life and normally speaking, I would have been dead. You don't go 135 miles an hour in the rain around a sharp curve and make it. In my young foolishness, I did that. And the car went sideways and then it just went boop and it was on the other side of the curve. In my young rebellion stupidness, I said, thank you. Boom, I hit it again. God's been merciful. I mean, I wonder what the angels who had to guard me thought. Here we go again. <laughs> you believe this? Really? May have said some of the same things about you. I want to point you to somebody who lived in the 1600s and, and called, his name is Thomas Watson, a Puritan, who wrote a piece called All Things for Good. And listen, let me just pause a minute. If you think the Puritans are just old, stuffy legalists, you don't know anything about the Puritans. You're just believing lies about the Puritans. Read them and you will see how Christ-centered, grace-centered, spirit-filled. I think my mic died. Can you hear me? All right. But Thomas Watson was one. And, and in all things for God... He talked about five ways angels serve. And he said they're employed for the good of the saints. And this is a little bit of an aside. I'll, I'll do it quickly. But I want you to think about this. Angels are sent to serve you. You know, don't be fascinated. Be fascinated with Jesus. But just know God's forces are, are sent to serve and protect and help and strengthen you. He says, number one, that angels comforted Mary in her call. And you see that in Luke chapter 1. Think about Daniel. He mentions Daniel. And the angels stopped the mouths of the lions. Without the angels, Daniel goes down in the dungeon and he is breakfast or dinner. Number three, he says they guard the believer from Psalm 91 and other scriptures. We saw in Hebrews, they're sent to serve those who will inherit salvation. Now, look at this. This was a, when I, And this is one of the reasons I'm sharing this to you. With you. Maybe I should leave that on since my mic died. Um, he said this about angels that they serve saints in sickness and death. 
They serve the saints in sickness and death. This is one of the things he said in that. And I'm just giving you pieces of it. Go read it, right? Believers' souls are carried to heaven by a convoy of angels when they die. Won't be alone. Believers' souls, believers who pass from this life, it says we're immediately in the presence of the Lord. You know how we get there? Angels ministering to us. And he says they serve the saints at the judgment. They open the saints' graves as our bodies are reunited with our spirits. They rid the godly of all their enemies. That was Matthew 24 and Matthew 13. I love the story in 2 Kings 6 where Elisha prays for his servants' eyes to be open because they're, they're surrounded by man's armies and his eyes are open and he sees all of the angelic armies around them. And then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in, in Daniel chapter 6. There's so many stories. The angels were with them in the furnace so that the only thing that burnt was the, the things that were binding them. Angels are real. They're out there. They're sent to serve those who will inherit salvation. And one of the things they were doing in our text, serving the apostles who were in that group by bringing them out of the prison, bringing them out of man's prison. Now, we want Joel Osteen this text. And if you end up in jail, this is not a promise that an angel is going to come and let you out of jail. But, but God used His angel to free His gospel so that it could go forth. Well, think about, by biblically think about angels and, and their ministry. And here they're defending and promoting the gospel, even sending them back out. Secondly, faithful God, gospel witness. If you're going to be a witness for God, you're going to have respect from some and rejection from others or opposition from others. Some are going to love you, some are going to hate you, just the way it is. If everybody speaks well of you, woe to you, Jesus said. So they spoke well of the false prophets who were before. I mean, that's serious to think about, isn't it? Because we just want to be loved by everybody. But if you are faithful to Jesus, it's going to raise up some opposition. Let me warn you before I quit. You, like many others, and like the leadership in this text, can find yourself on the wrong side of this fight. You're either for or against Jesus. You're either for or against God. In the Old Testament, false prophets and true prophets, false teachers and true teachers. In the New Testament, same thing, along with false apostles and true apostles. Read Corinthians. False preachers now and true preachers. How do we measure who is true and who is false? Listen, everybody not right. The devil masquerades as an angel of light and so do his messengers. And there's some people preaching, I'm putting it in quotes, preaching the word, even on TV, who are... His messengers and not Christ. How do you know who's who? Gospel. The gospel, the word. Oh, the whole counsel of God is it preached and taught. But just if you, if you are resisting the gospel, if you are resisting God, if you are embracing sin in this world and won't turn from it to Jesus... And Jesus alone, you are in opposition to God and I beg you, do not die that way. If you are trusting in Jesus and struggling in the fight with every other Christian, that is not meant to discourage you. 
In fact, I want to encourage you because the Christian life is a war. It is a fight. It is a struggle. And it's meant to be so that we stay focused on Jesus and not find our home here and grow in grace and make it all the way home with Him watching over us. But don't be on the wrong side of this fight. Number four, God always delivers His gospel. That's why I'm saying don't take this text and make it about you. Because you might go to jail for preaching the gospel and you might have your head chopped off in this country one day. That's the direction we are heading without revival. But God always delivers His gospel, not always His messengers. I mean, James is slaughtered there in Jerusalem and Peter's, I mean, set free. God is sovereign. All but one of the apostles were martyred. But the gospel didn't stop. God always delivers, frees His gospel, but not always His messengers. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will have a wonderful life. It's not what it says. We'll suffer persecution in some form, in some way. Five, the strong undercurrent of this passage is that nothing and no one will be able to stop the advance of the gospel message. Look at me. Everything that exists now, being held together now by Christ, exists for Him. We sing it. This is all yours, Jesus. Your church loves to have it so. You are in the first place. This all exists and is continuing for Jesus and for the Gospel to go to the ends of the earth. And when that job is finished, this is over. No one will be able to stop the advance of the Gospel message. Everything exists for Jesus and for His Gospel to reach His people. And in every age, there are philosophers and scientists who have, quote, proved the gospel wrong or proved God not to be, right? In every age, there are supposed people who think they can prove it not to be. And yet it continues on. And it will continue on through this age until God is finished. Think about the French historian philosopher Voltaire. He predicted that Christianity would be extinct within a hundred years of his death. Wah, wah. His estate became a Bible society headquarters. God has a sense of humor as well. Every age has its historians, its scientists, its philosophers, and they have all failed. Think about it. Since Cain killed Abel, man has been trying to stop God and His Gospel. And none have, and you won't. Some of you, your university professors, will claim that they have. They have not. That they will and they will not if you've been in school. The gospel will succeed. It will not be stopped. Just as in this passage we see, primarily we see God defending His gospel, the good news about His Son. And like I said, 11 out of 12 of these guys will be martyred by the end and John will go through great difficulty. His people will suffer to keep the gospel going. But His gospel will not stop until it accomplishes His purpose. Think of Isaiah 55. The word He sends forth will accomplish His purpose. 
He's a sovereign God. His kingdom, we started His kingdom. Luther, His kingdom never ends. I mean, you want to talk about somebody facing opposition for the gospel. Martin Luther, a monk, because of a lightning bolt, almost bit him on the rear. He's in the monastery and he can't find peace and he finally discovers the gospel and salvation and wants to help the church see where they've erred. And the, the church is opposing and anathematizing the gospel and booting him out and other reformers. But they couldn't stop the gospel. And nobody will ever stop the gospel until the gospel stops the gospel when it reaches people from every tribe and tongue and nation and language. Revelation 5, 9, and 10. I love to read Revelation and don't let people confuse you about it. Just read it. See what, see what God teaches you. You want to understand everything. It's apocalyptic literature. But it's mainly about Jesus and His victory. Carry that in it with you. Revelation 5, 9 to 10. And they sang a new song saying, now look at this, speaking, singing of Jesus, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and by your blood. Now watch this. You ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. And they shall reign on the earth. New heavens, new earth is coming. Forever with God in peace. But look at that. His gospel will go forth until it has accomplished His purpose, which is to save a people from every tribe and language and people and nation. The ends of the earth. It will go to the ends of the earth. And a people from the ends of the earth will be brought to Jesus. Are you one of those people? Are you trusting in Jesus? Could you be convicted of it in a court of law? Does your life give it evidence that your faith is in Jesus? If you're trusting in Jesus even with a weak faith, and you struggle and you struggle with doubt, welcome to the club. Nobody has a perfect faith yet. We're not glorified yet. We go through seasons of struggle and difficulty, and praise God, it's not all the time. But if you will not have Jesus... You have at least one more chance, and that's today. To repent of your sins and trust in Christ. To believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. You can, Lord Jesus, save me. I trust in you. But He wins. His kingdom is forever. Jesus is on the throne as King now. All authority in heaven and earth. And is accomplishing His purpose, which is taking His gospel to the ends of the earth. Believe it. Trust and rest in Him. And we'll pick up next week as we see the trial go on. My conclusion is simply to read Psalm 2. I've read it before, but watch this and watch what God says in Psalm 2 through David and, and David as a type of Christ that's ultimately fulfilled in Christ and about the Son. You'll see that. Look at this, and this kind of gives you a snapshot of the history of the world. Like I said, kind of this text does. We see the opposition and the victory of the gospel over opposition. But watch this in Psalm 2. I'm read this and I'm done. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? Any plot against God is a plot in vain. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed Christ, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. God is worried. 
He who sits in the heavens laughs. He, the Lord holds them in derision. Then He will speak to them in His wrath and terrify them in His fury, saying, Now look at this. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son. That's quoted in Hebrews, by the way. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore... God gives some advice to everyone, including the kings. Now therefore, O kings, be wise and be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way. For His wrath is quickly kindled. Now look, it ends with a promise. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. Take refuge in Jesus. Jesus wins, therefore His people win. Repent and believe the good news. Let's pray. Oh Father, have mercy. Cause Your Word to strengthen Your people and to propel us out with Your Gospel because of the joy and delight we find in You, because of You loving us and sacrificing Yourself for us. Lord, I pray for any under the sound of my voice who have yet to trust Jesus that they will turn and trust in Jesus today. Have mercy. Give them eyes to see, hearts to believe and understand. A will to turn and trust in Jesus. Lord, have mercy on us. Take off our blinders. And Lord, those of us who fear, replace it with boldness. Help us to go forth and tell others about our wonderful, loving, gracious, and merciful Savior who gives salvation as a free gift to those who will turn and trust Him. May we not forget this word. May we not forget this message. That you have and will defended your, you have defended and you will defend your gospel and you will see to it that your gospel accomplishes your purposes. We see a snapshot of that in our text and we'll see it as we go through Acts. It's true. It has been true. And it's made it all the way to Swansboro and it is going around the world. We have a king. And it is not us. It is Jesus. Help us to find our rest, our joy, our life, our delight, our salvation in Him. Thank You for Your love. Thank You for Your mercy. Thank You for Your grace. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.